cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risto.net's podcast on quant finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, quant finance editor of Risto.net, and today I am delighted to have two pluri-awarded quants, uh, and guests, uh, Vladimir Peterberg, Head of Quant Analytics and Development at NatWest Markets, is here in our studio. Hi, Vladimir. Great to Hi, have you back. Hi, how are you? Great to have to be back. And uh, we have uh, Alexander Antonov, uh, Quant R&D Lead at Adia, who has recently moved to Abu Dhabi and is connected remotely from there. Hi, Alexander. Great to have you. And uh, yeah, how are you? Yeah, not, not too bad, uh, Mauro. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. It's my pleasure, uh, uh, absolutely. Today, we will be talking about deep neural networks, but uh, for once, not for heralding the uh, proposal of a new application in finance, but rather we will, we will uh, going to uh, focus on uh, neural networks drawbacks. And from there, we'll be discussing ways to achieve the same performance with alternative methods uh, that you, you too will explain don't come with the same drawbacks. Uh, if I may start with you, Vladimir, uh, you have been skeptical, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, not much about the potential performance of neural networks, but more about the necessity of neural networks in finance. And uh, the question of necessity is in part motivated by the presence of uh, issues concerning the training time, the predictability, and the explainability of the output. Can you tell us a, a bit more about these issues? That's right, Mara. I have a bad reputation, I think, in the financial <laughs> industry as a kind of a, probably a preeminent skeptic of uh, the usability of uh, deep neural networks, right, <clears throat> in finance specifically. Clearly, they've been super successful in many other applications, such as image recognition and, uh, you know, speech uh, and translation and so on. And... Uh, once people have uh, this two and the companies that develop this um, such as google and um, meta formerly facebook and so on they put out the tools in the open um, access uh, for people kind of to work and play around and of course once you have tools you start people in other industries say oh let's use these tools let's see what you know comes out <coughs> And it's a bit uh, like, you know, you have a hammer and you look for nails, in my mind. And in finance, uh, that has clearly been the case as well. There have been a, f a number of interesting applications of neural networks, right? Kondratiev um, applied it to um, predict the shapes of interest rate curves in the future. McGee, uh, my good friend, uh, used it to fit... Um, wall surfaces with uh, deep neural networks and there are sort of many others um, so clearly they seem to have been quite useful but our main point i would say is that the financial problems are quite specific they are not as broad as trying to you know recognize images or generate you know speech let's say um, the things we usually have is small number of points, small number of uh, kind of input uh, inputs that we're trying to fit. We don't have millions of pixels that uh, we're trying mm -hmm. to approximate. Um, we have, you know, in the derivatives applications, let's say, or let's say time series applications, we have daily 
observations for 10 years, so which is you know a really small number of points. Um, we have one-dimensional outputs, so we think we can, uh, and that's what we've done, we think, uh, is we can come up with much better, much faster methods um, for the typical problems that we see in finance. Yeah, and uh, more specifically uh, with regards to those those issues. So, w what are the? Um, well, we, we know the black uh, black box effect in uh, uh, in neural networks. Uh, Sasha, can you uh, can you tell us a, a bit about uh, this problem and what you think is uh, uh, the consequences of uh, of this? Yes, yes. Uh, even if we if we even have had enough of data to construct the neural network with uh, different weights. You know, weight matrices, which uh, has quite a numerous number of parameters, right? So it can be thousand or even more. Uh, this black box structure uh, cannot be understood from uh, you know the from the looking at this matrix. We don't know what is kind of scale of the function. What is the granularity of this function? Can it jump uh, over small interval or not? Also, from a regulator's point of view, on the cell side, this is very important that if you present to a regulator a printed version of this matrix, <laughs> of course, he can check, uh, he can take a look at the numbers and so on, but this uh, will, sell, will sell him nothing. So that is why uh, from both uh, from both points of view, so first is a lack of data, and the second is opacity and the black box structure of the cell network, the application in at least uh, the cell side finance is quite uh, quite questionable. Of course, there's toys, you know, there's uh, prototypes. We can, it can be inter in interesting to take a look at this and that. However, uh, using them in the production is very questionable. Is mm. <clears throat> another issue the fact that um, Vladimir just made a comparison with languages, for example. Languages are relatively stable over time, while financial data tends to switch regimes. Absolutely, absolutely. The time dependence, uh, well, the time dependence a priori can also be taken into account by neural networks. But again, lack of data uh, do not permit us to uh, to fix, to, 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 to see, to understand this time dependence of the of our functions which we study. Absolutely, yeah. Also, I another thing is that, uh, which we have mentioned, uh, this uh, so-called predictability. For example, if we change uh, certain parameters of our input, the neural network can, you know, output neural network can be completely different. So we're not sure that little, uh, little changes in the parameter will not leave, would not lead to big changes in the output, which is, uh, you know, the question of such stability is also very important in, uh, in the mathematical finance. And Mauro, yes, to your point, uh, languages are stable, you know, cats, versus dogs have been very stable, right? Uh, let's say they don't change appearance over 10 years, you know, maybe over a thousand years, but not over 10 years. But uh, if you look at uh, the interest rates in this country where I am, right, in uh, the UK, uh, in the summer we had moves uh, in one day bigger than we've had like over previous number of years. Uh, so, you know, a neural network trained on you know, let's say 2010 to 2020 uh, would completely misrepresent, you know, the response of the markets to um, what happened in the summer yeah, and yeah. Uh, early fall.
Uh, and here uh, comes your, your recent work. Uh, so we just published your paper. It's titled uh, Alternatives to Deep Neural Networks in Finance, and it's online on risk.net. Uh, the objective of this paper is pretty clear from the title. The, the, uh, it is to propose alternatives to deep neural network. But uh, can you tell me, uh, Vladimir, a little bit more about this work, and in particular in relation to those issues that we just mentioned? Sure. Um, I mean, we touched on some of them, right? So, um, uh, Alexander already mentioned explainability, well, predictability, you know, how the change of um, the um, outputs uh, as a function of the inputs. Um, the nature of neural networks is such that it's highly multidimensional, and we use a very highly dimensional stochastic gradient uh, optimizers which frankly 10 years ago none of us in finance would even dream of uh, you know trying to use uh, for real problems um, exp um, explainability is uh, is another one you know how do changes to the inputs how can we explain what happens to the output from changes in the inputs black box nature we talked about it the speed i mean Okay, they work, but they, you know it takes minutes, hours, days uh, to train some of these models. And clearly, in finance, the speed of uh, calculation is is uh, really our primary goal. So we just looked at those and we said, okay, let's uh, find better ways to <coughs> to approximate the functions. What we're trying, really trying to do here, is Imagine we have a function that is slow to calculate, and we have plenty of those in finance, usually complicated models where we calculate the value of a derivative, you know, based on Monte Carlo or PDE. Um, and it's slow to calculate because it's a complicated model. Um, so can we approximate it with a function um, that is fast to calculate? And that's a classical problem in math, right? Mm. Approximation of functions is not new. You know, it's been going on for, you know, hundred, well, a couple of hundreds of years, let's say. Uh, people have been looking at that. Um, and we can, we derived kind of our <coughs> inspiration from basically classical methods of uh, function approximations. Um, mm. So let's go into those uh, two methods. So you present two methods here. The first is uh, called generalized stochastic sampling. Uh, well, first question is, what is it? Um, Alexander, can, can you start on this? Yes. <clears throat> Actually, uh, this is the parametric, uh, parametric representation of the function. Uh, let us say with a certain, you know, the, with the with the shapes, uh, like bell-looking shapes, right? So we can we have different forms, but we have chosen quite a specific one, uh, fast to calculate. You can see in our paper. However, in nutshell, we have different bells, right? So uh, these are our basis functions. The centers of these bells are situated, which is very importantly, in a in a randomly distributed points, right? So. This actually the key of this basis to uh, to um, come up with, a, with to to come up with the high dimensional high dimensional problems. So uh, as we know that the Monte Carlo integration is more efficient and you know the only available method in multi-dimensional space rather than the regular you know regular grid so here's absolutely the same analogy we have these bells which are situated in random points 
And uh, these random points can be specified according to the function or can be done, for example, in a uniform way on the, you know, in this, in, on the support of the function. So this makes the, uh, our, uh, our basis function, our generalized stochastic sampling, uh, efficient in multidimensionals. Moreover, we, uh, we specify the widths of these bells according to approximately the mean distance between these functions. So we have a special, we have a clear uh, notion of the scale of this function. So it cannot be too uh, wavy, for example, between on the certain intervals, which corresponds to the mean, uh, mean uh, average between the different, um, the different points. Actually, the word uh, generalized stochastic sampling comes from the stochastic sampling technique, which can, uh, again, which proposed, uh, you know, certain, the same, the same sort of basis, which is uh, also, you know, that can be sampled in a stochastic way to reduce the, uh, reduce the, how do you say, the errors with the, with the image recognition. So, for example, if you take a look at our eyes, the receptors are, uh, placed in the random order. So that is why it makes our eye possibility to recognize better images without like blurring effect or, you know, the uh, so-called aliasing. So this, uh, this is one of the one of our methods, which are based on the stochastic nature of these uh, centers of the basis functions. And uh, was this method uh, um in existence already, as in uh, in other fields, was he applied already uh, elsewhere? Well, um, oh. maybe I'll just add a couple of words. Um, uh, again, stepping back a bit, uh, interpolating functions or fitting functions in one dimension is easy, right? We have super great methods, Fourier, Chebyshev, and so on. When you try to generalize to multiple dimensions, and here we talk about let's say 10 to 20 dimensions is uh, what we think is the typical financial problem. If you try to do it on a regular grid, as uh, Alexander said, you know, uh, the curse of dimensionality kills you and we do the um, uh, random sampling. Um, and the inspiration, I guess, from the method comes from uh, image uh, reconstruction. Is that right, Alexander? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yes. Um, so again, the problem is not new, right? We have in image reconstruction, you have sampling of an image at random points and your problem is, you know, how to interpolate essentially, how to reconstruct mm -hmm. the image, which, you know, to us sounded very much like uh, a problem in finance, you know, reconstructing a function from a sampling of uh, random points. And as Alexander said, the randomness of the ability to use kind of randomly selected points to reconstruct a function is a key uh, reason for why we wanted to do this. And uh, how does it work specifically for those applications that you mentioned also the hard to approximate functions? Um, well, so the, the way we see this working, right? So you have a slow to calculate function in, you know, three, five, 10, 20 dimensions. You sample it at a re relatively small number of points, let's say 10,000 points, uh, that's kind of, the, is done offline, let's say, um, you know, not in your main um, risk management application. And then you fit the functional form that we propose, the generalized stochastic sampling form. Um, and then instead of 
in your main risk management application when they calculate values and uh, you know creeks and so on instead of the calling your slow function you call your fast approximation <laughs> and uh, how does it compare to deep neural network well the comparison is um, what we have done in our paper because a reader can access to all these uh, uh, all the um, possible experiments we can say that of course our methods uh, work much faster each if the function is uh, uh, relatively smooth then our methods uh, work you know precision is higher with the same number of parameters rather than neural networks we know the scale of our function which we can uh, which can play with uh, for the better fit so we don't have a uh, black box structure as the neural networks so we see all all this uh, uh, all the problems which we have described for neural networks were more or less uh, overcome and uh, i guess i guess other things uh, to keep in mind is uh we our kind of we have a few flavors of the method but our kind of main one has one dimensional optimization one dimensional nonlinear optimization whereas a neural network fit is you know thousands of parameters dimensional optimization and it, within this one dimensional optimization we do some clever tricks to um, fit some other parameters using linear methods which are you know uh, super fast so um, that's um, that's kind of how we do it. Let's uh, go and talk about the second method that you present, which is uh, the functional tensor train. Uh, again, as for the first, wh what is it? Can you give me uh, an overview of what uh, what it is, Alexander? M maybe uh, it's probably for me to explain. Okay. Okay. Uh, <coughs> unless Alexander, you want to give it a go. No, no, please go ahead. Please go ahead. <laughs> Please. Okay, so I'll, I'll start slightly again from kind of background. Um, if you have a matrix, a two-dimensional matrix, right? Um, there is a concept of a rank, right? How mm -hmm. many kind of um, degrees of freedom, if you will, it has. And uh, what's often the problem is try to f uh, approximate a matrix of full rank with a matrix of a lower rank. And for example, rank one matrix is just a product of a um, row vector times a column vector. So a matrix would have n of size n would have n squared parameters, whereas a one rank approximation would have a 2n um, number of parameters. And this is relevant because if you have a two-dimensional function, function of two uh, variables rather, <coughs> then if you want to approximate it with, um, you may want to approximate it uh, with a product of one-dimensional functions, which one being a function of its own argument, okay? So what you do is you reduce dimension, which feeds into our explainability uh, objective, because then you can much clearer say what is the, um, role of kind of each of the of the arguments so how do we do the one rank or low rank approximation for matrices well we just call svd right so, um, single value decomposition a method that's been known for a long time you calculate eigenvectors eigenvalues you cut off this you just choose the top, sort of top three let's say for rank three approximation 
and you're done. So for matrices, it works really well. And so uh, by extension for two-dimensional functions, it works really well. Now, how, how do we do this in 10 dimensions, right? So in 10 dimensions, an analog of a matrix is a tensor. So it's a 10-dimensional um, uh, matrix, which we call it, which people call a tensor. How do you impose a similar structure or similar decomposition on the um, tensor? It turns out to be a much more complicated problem. It's uh, way more kind of complications. And tensor train, the one we talk about, is a very clever method um, by Ivana Seledic, Um about 10 years, so very recent, let's say, uh, 10 years uh, in the making of decomposing a 10-dimensional tensor into a product of matrices, two-dimensional matrices, okay? And then we saw that and we thought, okay, then we can use that to decompose a 10-dimensional, or approximate rather, a 10-dimensional function, function of 10 arguments with a product of functions of two arguments which again gives us a structure, explainability, and much faster performance. I see. And uh, how, does, uh, how do the two methods combine? This is, uh, this is the clever bit, okay? So we used um, basis functions, kernels, as uh, Alexander explained. In the tensor method, you don't want to be sampling. So to, to create a 10-dimensional tensor from 10-dimensional function, you would think you need to sample it on a regular grid, right, in 10 dimensions, which is obviously unfeasible. Uh, what we have, have come up with is a functional tensor train uh, extension of the tensor train that we use the same um, basis functions uh, as in um, generalized stochastic sampling to translate the problem kind of from uh, function being sampled on a stochastic grid into a linear tensor train problem. I don't know, Alexander, if you want to add anything to that. Yes. Yeah, so if we, uh, if we take a look at the, um, uh, the basis function decomposition for the tensor train, formally we will have uh, the the basis functions which are situated in each node of the multidimensional grid, regular grid. So seemingly there are a lot of basis functions. But what is very important here is that the coefficients uh, corresponding to these basis functions are uh, represented in the low rank uh, decomposition. So we can actually combine them. We can uh, using the multiplication of the coefficient part on the basis function we can combine them is much lower number of the of the elements in this sum. So this uh, tensor chain is a bit orthogonal to the you know, stochastic one. However, they serve the same goal: how to set up uh, basis functions with the coefficients such that the number is limited. In, in, in you know, we don't have uh, ten power hundred of basis functions like this, which is limited number. And uh, but uh, at the same time, they managed to cover multidimensional space. I see. And how does this um, uh, translate in practice? So how uh, 
how do you reach the output? What is uh, uh, required computationally to uh, to use these two methods? Because I, I think there are a couple of answers. Uh, I'll give one for the functional tensor train, and that's what Alexander alluded to. It's actually super computationally efficient. Okay. Um, because once we have our function that we sample on a stochastic grid and we represent it as a tensor train, then the, to fit to fit the function, um, the problem is not quite linear, but it's almost linear. Okay, so hmm. because our approximating function is a product of matrices, essentially, well, we represent it as a product of matrices, then to fit it to a known function we use what is called an uh, alternating least squares method. You basically fix all, all but one um, functions. Uh, you know, you start with some random values, then you have one value, then your problem becomes just a least squares problem, so a linear regression solved by essentially a matrix inversion. So that fixes one, then you move to the second one, you solve for the second one, the third and so on, and you cycle through those um, <coughs> matrices until you the convergence, and it's actually you know super efficient basically. Um, and for generalized stochastic sampling, I think I already uh, mentioned it's a one-dimensional in our kind of core case optimization uh, combined with some uh, linear regressions. So again, compared to deep neural networks, it's about two orders of magnitude, you know, for the test, obviously it depends on the test case and so on, but for the tests we've done, it's uh, two orders of magnitude faster. So mm. where one takes 100 seconds, ours <coughs> takes one second, uh, and it's actually more accurate as well. I see. And uh, is it actually used in practice by any of you to, uh, if not, what does it take uh, to, to get to that stage? Almost nothing. Uh, we have uh, we have the code which is which was uploaded to uh, to 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 GitLab to GitHub sorry to GitHub, and uh, so it's just sufficient to take it and to you know to run it. So it's it's very fast. Uh, it literally replaces uh, uh, calls to neural networks, uh, so without any uh, without almost any adaptations. However, uh, well, however. At the same time, I would like to mention uh, two areas of the application of our methods. So the first one, as Vladimir said, it is a, a tabulation or approximation of uh, of slow functions, right? When we uh, we can spend some time on calculation of the slow function, and then we you know fit it using our methods, and then we just price it, uh, calculate it uh, instantaneously. The second method is a so-called regression. So regression, uh, linear regression, which is used in general to calculate of conditional expectation in application to finance. So for example, to calculate uh, expected value of uh, some payoff, uh, numerically we do the, uh, we perform this uh, conditional expectation, uh, which is known under the name of regression, or it can be known as American Monte Carlo, also Longstaff Schwarz, a lot of synonyms here. But in reality, it's just numerical computation of the conditional expectation. So our methods are very well uh, fitted to calculation of such expectations because, as I said, we 
have a scales of their function. So we can match the scale of the function uh, which receives the conditional expectation and the uh, the theoretical or kind of approximately theoretical uh, conditional expectation of our payoff. Uh, moreover, uh, the uh, functional tensor train can have different scales and different dimensions. For example, we can put the most important dimension, which corresponds to a stock price, rather than uh, to the interest rate, which uh, in the function depends very, very mildly. So, uh, ability to get uh, to get these uh, these uh, scales uh, theoretically can help us uh, quite a lot in the calculation of this uh, conditional expectation. You can read can take a look at the at our paper where we have derived uh, several formulas which um, which can give you uh, good. Uh, um, Good values uh, for the number of uh, number of uh, basis functions and the number of samples, for example. So the, uh, we have uh, we have presented a, a recipe how to optimize uh, the calculations and you know the given the functions and so on. In, in terms of uh, you know whether it's used in practice, right? It's kind of hard to say. Uh, it's pretty new kind of hot of the press type research, right? So, and it usually for banks takes a while to mm. Im implement new methods because, you know, model validation and, you know, it just takes a while. So I can say we are NatWest Markets exploring them. Um, I, I shouldn't be saying much more than that, but uh, the interest has been phenomenal, right? So I've had multiple people, you know, contacting me, trying to understand, you know, how to use them, you know, follow-up questions and so on. So I fully expect they will be uh, used by uh, multiple uh, organizations, in, you know, once they get to it kind of thing. I see. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, we mentioned a, a few points for comparison between uh, these two methods and uh, uh, deep neural networks. And we mentioned, like, computational uh, requirements and uh, the uh, interpretability. But Vladimir, is there any other point you would like to make on the comparison between uh, between the two? Look, I, I think for a certain class of problem, you know, it's it's not a universal uh, solution to everything, you know, image classification and so on. But for a certain class of problems that I think are important in finance, I think these methods just beat deep neural networks, you know, hands down. There is, there is no doubt in my mind. Uh, so where I would see useful applications, uh, well, as I said, when we try to approximate slow functions with uh, fast functions, but for example, XVA, right, where we, mm -hmm. CVH, where we have to calculate future mark-to-markets in, you know, a bunch of uh, simulated states, right? Um, I just see this, especially, if we need to combine them with American Monte Carlo, with uh, you know regression-based uh, <coughs> optimal kind of calc um, optimality calculations, as Alexander explained, I think this just beat uh, neural networks hands down. And uh, well, last question for you: and what is the next step in this stream of research? I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been working on this for, you know, most of the pandemic, I, I think, right? So a little kind of, uh, I think, I think 
we've done everything we could think about. I'm sure uh, there is more. There are more things to do, but uh, my feeling is like this is good. Good to go. Absolutely. Just to mention a couple of things which uh, can be, you know, the minor things which can be done, and if. Uh, uh, reader is um, is interested. You know, he can go with this. Uh, for example, how to spread uh, these uh, centers of the bells, these uh, points which for now are uniform to adopt them to the function. For example, when the function is interested, a lot of changes. You can put more points. We can we have put a sketch of this uh, of this proposal in our uh, supporting assessment paper, which we of course uh, referred to the risk uh, risk paper. So the reader can find certain hints and certain directions in the appendix of this uh, of this supporting paper. Fantastic, Vladimir Alexander. Thank you very much for participating to the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All the pleasure was ours. And thanks everybody for listening.